0: Should be us okay. Um, welcome, folks, to another episode of the Bishop P podcast. Um, I can't believe the next couple of sentences are going to come out of my mouth right now, but I never thought I'd be sitting here and introducing uh the one and only Judy Murray. Judy, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us tonight.
1: You are welcome. Um, thanks for stalking me and hounding me into doing it. Um, no. <laughs> Always uh, always got time for young people, especially if they're interested in sports, so nice to be with you.
0: Magnificent. That's what perseverance gets you, that's what it is. <laughs> um, okay, we're also joined by uh, Mr. Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson looking very festive like myself. Thank you very much. Uh, and we're also joined by our sports captain, Katie Stansbury, who's had a busy, busy week with the reindeer run, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, without further ado we'll go into the questions Judy and I'm going to start us off and um, like to find out about your school career and what that was like uh, growing up for you.
1: Oh goodness I need to have a long memory it was a long time ago um, I went to Dumbling Primary School until uh, I was in primary five and my parents decided to send me up to Morrison's Academy. At the time there wasn't a a senior school in Dunblane. So uh, kids from Dunblane went to McLaren High School in Callender. But my parents decided to kind of bite the bullet a bit and send me up to Morrison's because I was so interested in sport. Um, And I'm very glad that they did because it was a girls' school and it allowed me to play pretty much every sport under the sun. Um, I left school after fifth year. I had all of my hires. I had a place at Edinburgh University. Um... Uh, so I took a year out to play tennis, and then I went to I went to uni and did French and business studies.
0: What would what would your teachers' perception of you be?
1: Um, yeah, lively, probably. Um, as <laughs> quite. It was a little bit disruptive, I think, through my teenage years. Um, didn't really like sitting still that much. Um, so I, I was at my happiest when it was PE or when it was after school, you know, and there was always activities after school or, or school matches, you know, whether that was netball, hockey, badminton, swimming. I did lots of school teams. And, um, yeah, I really loved that about school, that there were so many opportunities to try so many different things um yeah, I I would say if, if a subject didn't engage me, I could be quite noisy and probably quite distracting to some of the other some of the other kids. Um but yeah, I, I think the, the year that I left Morrison the it became a girls, um, a mixed school, a co-ed school. There was a boys' school and a girls' school next door to each other. And uh, the year after I left it, it be, it became mixed. So I, I was always glad, actually, to have gone to a, a girls' school. Um, I think certainly the opportunities for me to, I don't know, there's there's something about um, you you never feel like you're in the minority, um, mm-hmm. which I think as a female who's grown up in sport always have uh, it, certainly maybe things are a little different now but i always felt like you're vying for a position or you're vying to be heard um so i i enjoyed the whole thing about being uh, being at a girls school went on a bus to school for took us about 40 minutes to get there in the bus in the morning because it stopped everywhere to pick to pick people up so it was an early start every morning but again i think all of these things are their routine their discipline you make great friends on the bus um yeah, so I, I can look back fondly on my school days for sure. And like everybody, you remember your favourite teachers or you know, the ones that went the extra mile for you or who made their subject really interesting. And, and funnily enough, um, my favourite teacher at school was a Latin teacher. I mean, okay. not many people would say that, but, you know, <laughs> I actually loved Latin. I mean, what is that all about?
0: You want to give us a bit of Latin, Judy?
1: Amo, amas, amat.
0: So fair. Um, katie i think you'll get the next question
1: Pam.
2: yeah um when you were younger did you have any part-time jobs and did any skills you learned off of
1: that and i did it- actually katie i had uh, the first job probably that i did was paper round um and i hated a sunday paper round because the sunday papers are much heavier because they got all the magazines and everything mm. in them but I, yeah i used to do a paper round um on the weekends so and then i also had a saturday job in a in a greengrocer well not a greengrocer a grocer a proper old fashioned grocer so i learned how to slice the bacon how to cut the cheese i made up the orders i stocked the shelves um uh, and so forth that that was all when i was kind of early early teens and really after that i you know cuz i got into my sport a lot i played tennis in the summer i played badminton in the winter and most weekends i was away playing in something you know matches or competitions and and so forth but I think the things that I learned from the jobs at school is you learn about um, how to deal with the public You, you learn how to serve people you learn how to be part of a team you learn about discipline of getting up and doing what you have to do within the time that's allowed to do it um you learn a lot from being around other people usually older people um that's a big advantage i think for me um anything where you can learn sort of on the job training i call it within coaching you know the the easiest way to get or quickest way to get good at something is to work alongside people who know what they're doing yeah. um so i think when you're a young thing and you go into that environment you you, you need to find the the people who will spend time with you and, and help you to be able to do it do whatever you're able to do efficiently but there's no substitute for getting work experience when you're young yeah
0: That's awesome. Yeah, Mr. Johnson.
2: For me, okay, Judy. So my next question is just about how it all started. So, what was your route or your, your journey into tennis? Did that
1: come about? Um, I started playing tennis when I was ten. Um, I'm very old, so when I learned to play tennis, you had uh, wooden rackets and the tennis courts were were well, they're the same size as they are just now. But when you're ten, they they feel like they're huge. And tennis balls were quite hard in those days. Nowadays, kids can learn much younger you know with mini rackets and sponge balls or low pressure balls and and badminton sized courts you know so you can be eased into it better but yeah I, I started uh, at the local club in Dunblane with my parents my parents both played obviously at the club but they also played at county level so they were they were decent players so they taught me how to play you know this this was an era when there was no such thing as a tennis coach you just you learned from the older members of the of the club and 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 they taught me how to play the game so they were never really teaching me how to hit the ball they taught me how to play the game which of course is the fun of of any sport so um yeah I played with the you know the the other kids at the club I played in the club teams I got good enough to play in the ladies team when I was about Eleven or twelve, and that was that was great actually because my mum and my mum's best friend both played in it. The, the toughest thing I think about that of playing in a, in an adults team when you're very young is actually socialising with them, you know, at the match tees and things like that because they talk about things that are just like you think they're so boring and you're not part of it. Cause you you just you can't don't really feel like you can join in. That was really the toughest part of it, but the playing of the matches was was great because again you're learning from people who are more experienced than you are so that that was how i got into tennis i played for scotland uh for a number of years at tennis although you can only play in kind of friendly fixtures for scotland because tennis is a GB sport so we we have scotland england or scotland wales ireland matches um but they were kind of unofficial matches if you know what I mean um I played for Great Britain in the World Student Games when I was at at uni that was one of the biggest things that I played in um went to Romania for that in way back 1981 had a great great time massive experience being part of it's the biggest world sporting event behind the Olympics it's absolutely huge um won oh, I won a lot of Scottish titles. It wasn't so difficult to win Scottish titles, to be honest, because tennis was very much a minority sport, and very few women or girls played um competitively. actually back then, more people played more women played competitively then than actually play competitively now, which is very sad uh for me uh to see to see that but yeah, so it wasn't so difficult to become the best in Scotland because there wasn't that many people to to play against, but I played badminton in the winter because we had no indoor courts and our weather is crap as you know and I played for Scotland at badminton um as well so those were my two favorite favorite sports the racket the the racket sports and how I got into coaching um was really just after Andy was born Uh, Jamie is 15 months older than Andy we moved from Glasgow back to Dunblane to be a bit closer to my parents so that I had some help with the with the kids and I went over and rejoined the tennis club and still discovered that there was still no coaching for any of the youngsters there and so I started to volunteer just for a couple of hours a week and I wasn't a coach I was a sales rep when my kids were, were small I had to give my, up my job when I had Andy um, and you know I, I really enjoyed teaching the game or sharing the game with the with the kids at the club and it just kind of snowballed from there and I, I set up a really great um, program within Our community club. I roped in all the other mums to help running cafes and competitions and teams and with school teams, club teams. Because the fun of sport is competing, as as I said before. So we had a fantastic community club. It was just a regular little club for artificial grass courts, nice little clubhouse with a couple of squash courts in it. But just great people around and a wonderful place for for youngsters to to grow up. Because there was obviously squash and tennis, but there was a park beside the tennis club, so they could play football in the days before the no ball game signs went up. They could play cricket over there. They had water bomb fights. We had you know if the weather. It was bad. We had loads and loads of board games and things in the clubhouse. So that was my introduction to coaching. And I went from being a volunteer coach at the club to working in the wider district um which you would maybe call a county in tennis we call them districts for some reason um and then you know upgraded my coaching qualifications I did my first coaching qualification just before I went to uni and I only did it as a means of making some pocket money on the weekends um and never actually used it I passed the qualification but um never actually used it. always found better things to do on the weekends so you know. I, When I was working at the club and then in the wider district, I upgraded my qualification again and then I upgraded it to the top qualification and I was the first woman to pass the LTA's performance award, which was their their top award at that time and um as a result of passing that I managed to get the Scottish national coach job which sounds like a it sounds like a big deal but actually tennis was such a minority sport in Scotland there was no infrastructure so really I was starting with a pretty much a blank canvas and tiny salary rubbish budget um but loads and loads of enthusiasm and um that that was when I really got stuck in um to learn you know to to creating opportunities for the Scottish kids that other countries gave to their kids so I created infrastructure uh, developed a whole load of players I developed a lot of coaches as well and after 10 years I quit um, a a bit in frustration um, because we had all these great kids coming through and I had tiny budget I had you know I didn't have staff it was just it was really too much and anyway Sports Scotland wouldn't give me any more funding Um, kids had to train outside of the country but they really were good enough I thought a lot of them to become world-class and we couldn't cope with them in Scotland so I resigned after 10 years and decided I was just going to kind of do the best that I could to help Jamie and Andy, um, it, you know, in their careers, they were sort of seventeen and eighteen at the time, and uh, it worked out okay. It was a big risk, but it worked out okay. It
2: worked out okay. See, what you were saying about having a blank canvas. Did that? Did you Did you like that then? That you could go in and be, basically put your own stamp on it and do things the way that that you felt it should be done?
1: Yeah, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't much there, and if you think about it, a Scottish national coach for tennis job is not going to attract a great world-class tennis coach from another country because at the time we didn't have any indoor courts we had no infrastructure we had no world-class players we had no world-class coaches you would be completely starting from scratch so it wasn't an attractive proposition to anybody else but it was to me because I understood the landscape and uh, not long after I started the first indoor courts opened at Sterling University there were four in there there's six in there now but and, and th- that was was, you know, four or five miles from where we lived, which was great. Um, otherwise, I'd have been driving through to Glasgow or Edinburgh or somewhere else, um, you know, on a pretty much daily basis to work. So, um, yeah, I think it didn't, uh, I mean, the job was, a, it was a bit scary in itself, because there 's a big responsibility when you 're a national coach and but I think for for me I, I you know I just try to apply common sense to everything that I do, and I realized i start start with the youngest kids because they are the ones you can influence the most mm-hmm. so I started with twenty children who I thought were the had the most potential across Scotland, aged between seven and eleven so Andy would have been the youngest, one of the youngest, and Elena Baltasha would have been um, the the oldest she was eleven. And uh, all of those 20 kids, four went on to play Davis Cup for Great Britain and Baltasha went on to play Fed Cup. She was the British number one for many years. And Jamie and Andy obviously won their Grand Slams, became world number ones. Jamie Baker made 150 in the world and Colin Fleming made top. 20 in the world in in doubles so and we also produced um Leon Smith who's the Davis Cup captain and head of men's tennis at the LTA now he started with me when he was 20 um and uh, and really I gave him an apprenticeship I couldn't I couldn't pay him but I could give him a learning opportunity and he grabbed it with both hands and he's one of the most successful coaches um in Great Britain now so we did okay, we did okay. So I always <laughs> say to people, I'm, I'm not telling you this for any other reason that you know, it's not about what you have, it's what you do with what you have and it's about surrounding yourself with the right people because if you have a, an army around you that support you and you're all in it together, you have no idea what you can achieve.
0: Absolutely. That sounded, like, sounded really positive but see along those lines, did you have any kind of setbacks or challenges that, that made your job a little bit more difficult?
1: yeah i had um i mean there were loads of challenges of course because because i was i was on my own you know at that time tennis mm-hmm. scotland which is the governing body which now has about 20 staff there were four people there was me as the national coach there was a head of development and there were two secretaries um so one one would have been the main secretary which now you'd probably call a ceo but Mm. she was a secretary and then there was an assistant secretary and that was it you know for the whole of scotland and and there was a a little one room office in uh, edinburgh and um so really you were you were having to do an awful lot You Well, pretty much having to do everything yourself. I was responsible for everything that came under National Coach, which included coach education, National Coaching Conference, talent identification, competitions. Now there are heads of all of these things. But I had to to do everything. So it was a real challenge. I had to work incredibly hard to juggle and manage everything, um, as well as develop a a team for the future. Because, you know, you're very aware that, on your own you can do so much but that was why I brought in I brought in an army again and my army actually initially was um the parents you know and I said here's what I want to do and here's how you're going to have to help me because I can't do it myself when I started you know I didn't have any staff and uh, I did just the same as I did at the club and um you know, we started a little cottage industry. So start small, dream big, take small steps, but keep moving forward and take people with you. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's always, there's always obstacles. There's a challenge being in Scotland for a start, one with limited facilities, limited budget, rubbish, weather, and also being so far away from everything else. So as soon as the kids that we were working with, it it was very easy for them to outgrow the competition in Scotland simply because there weren't a lot of, There weren't a lot of great kids around and you get fed up playing the same people. So having to go down to England for competitions, for GB training sessions, and then having to go overseas to get Tennis Europe points or European ranking points or World Junior ranking points incurs a lot of travel. A lot of time and a lot of money, and the, the financial side of things was always a massive obstacle, trying to find the money, trying to get people to invest in tennis when it 's not a sport that we do. you know if I 'd been rugby or football or golf and I had world class kids, people would be throwing money at me probably, but it was quite hard, and I also think I think I found it probably increasingly difficult to convince people in what I was doing because I was female i 'm absolutely certain that i wasn 't taken as seriously as I would have been had I been a, a man in the same position
0: um, Katie over to you
1: yeah. uh, what would you say your greatest achievement in life I think probably what what i achieved um, what I achieved when I was the national coach you know starting from a blank canvas to you know, junior Grand Slam champions, some world class coaches, um, a, a pool of really great players. I think what saddens me enormously now, um, Katie, is that we don't have that anymore. You know, somebody should have built on that when right. when I left, um, and we don't have that now, and that really disappoints me. We we should have been riding the crest of a wave, especially when Andy and Jamie started winning their Grand Slams, and they're you know contending for uh, all of the you know, all of the major events, uh, for the last sort of 15 years. And we haven't built on that. We don't have any major events, um, you know, we don't have any major events up here. We have, still have very limited facilities. Um, and it, it just it really disappoints me that we haven't capitalised on the profile and success and excitement. We have in terms of tennis fans. There are a lot more tennis fans in Scotland now. But, yeah, but that's, that, that's the thing that, that disappoints me the most. But I think it probably was my greatest achievement because, of, because you, you know, it started from nothing and nobody believed we could do anything. Nobody except me.
0: <laughs> right. um, the next set of questions do they are in the least to you obviously as, as a mother? Um, the reason why I'm asking, I' asking. I recently watched uh, some of your documentary on the driving force, which is on Sky Sports or Sky. Um, and one of the, the things you spoke about was the media sort of portrayed you as a pushy, intense mother, but in fact, it was more to do with your passion and your enthusiasm and just your determination to do well.
1: Yeah, I think um, I had a rough time with the media, as did Andy when he started out. Um, But I found myself uh, picked out in a way that probably most sporting parents would not be picked out. And a lot of that had to do with the nature of of tennis and Wimbledon in particular, which was really in 2005 Wimbledon, where Andy kind of came into the public eye um, because he made the third round and was playing on the middle Saturday on the centre court as a just turned 18 year old and the nature of tennis and particularly at Wimbledon is that you know there's no ad breaks at Wimbledon because it's on the BBC and you have 20 back then 20 seconds between points and 90 seconds at an end change or a set change and in those dead times the cameras and the commentators are always looking for somewhere to go so of course they go in the player box or the royal box and they talk about the people that are in there and because, because we were brand new of course, they start to, to to talk about us, the family, the team, the the, the coaches, and so forth. And I think that uh, I think that that was where I, I, f- I first kind of got picked out as the anomaly that was um, a competitive mother of sons. And I, I do think if I'd been a a competitive dad of sons. I don't think anybody would have really picked it up in the same way. So it was almost like being made to feel that there was something wrong with being competitive or being ambitious. or showing too much enthusiasm, you know, whereas you go along to a football match or a rugby match, you know, people are pumping their fists and baring their teeth and shouting and whatever all the time, but it's kind of almost like, Oh, it's not really the done thing. You know, what's she doing? She's pushy. She's overbearing. She's aggressive. She's. So I think the media painted this picture of me and I think the written press, um, You know, I read a lot of things that were written about me by people I'd never met. And I thought, wow, you're just making an assumption based on the fact that I get excited watching my kids playing tennis. (laughs) Um, So I kind of had to put up with that for for a long time. And because I'd given up my job, I I was no longer the national coach. So I I, I sort of became just known as Andy and Jamie's mum, which is, you know, it's kind of sloppy thing to think that, you know, well she's just the mum actually what i'd had to learn how to coach i'd had to learn how to negotiate my way through the you know the the pathway through through tennis i'd learned how to fundraise and analyze video analyze i'd learned to do massage and now i was having to learn about the life and business of managing a a professional athlete or two professional athletes and that's a completely different thing because you know the boys were young and they have to concentrate on what they have to do for their sport but somebody's got to take care of the logistics and the paying the bills and servicing the sponsors and all the rest of it so there were a lot of things that I then had to like you no know, tax returns you have to do tax returns in all sorts of different countries because you're playing all over the world There's, there was just um there was a lot a lot to learn and i think that you know when i continued to be criticized for always being around and why don't you let him go he's you know he's old enough to look after himself i was thinking you know most players have a parent around actually but you seem to just be picking picking on me you know as as the mother of a young a young british player so um yeah, it's. I, I, but I think it, you know, it turned. I think it turned a lot when uh, when Andy won. Actually, when Andy won Wimbledon, uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think I think they kind of forgave me for everything that they thought I was awful for when he won Wimbledon because it was just like, wow, you know, after seventy, almost eighty years, I think since a British man had won Wimbledon, and then suddenly they forgave him for being a surly Scot with a boring voice and doesn't cut his hair enough or doesn't shave or you know whatever they want to criticize him for and and um yeah and I, I think also when I became the fed cup captain which is the British women's team um I got the chance to do that at the end of 2011 and that was a massive thing for me because it was somebody recognizing that I was a good coach and I wasn't just the mum, um, and you know that gave me an awful lot of confidence. It gave me a lot of confidence to start speaking out um, about things because I had to, because I was the team captain. I had to speak out on behalf of w- women's sports. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's been uh, it's been a it's been a journey. It's it's had lots of lots of obstacles, but I think you know you just have to keep your your blinkers on. And I think when people criticise you, you have to remember that you're not asking them for their advice because you don't value their advice. The people whose advice or opinion you value are your friends and your family, maybe your teachers, you know, the, they're the people who mean something to you who actually know You just have to keep remembering teacher. that. So <laughs> I'd throw that one in there, John, just for you. <laughs> okay, I
0: think you'll get the next question.
1: Yeah. How do you feel when you're watching either Andy or uh, Jamie? Like, do you feel calm and composed or do you feel tense and uptight? Don't be ridiculous, Katie, calm and composed. I'm quite good <laughs> at sitting, looking at it like I'm calm and composed now. Um, but actually, it, I, 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 yeah, it's, 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 it's torture really. Um, you know, I think, it, and it got worse, the better they got. You know, the higher they went up the rankings, the more expectation there was on them from the media, from the public and from themselves. And I felt that a lot. You know, my common sense was telling me there's nothing you can do about it. Once they go out there, you can't do anything other than be supportive in the crowd. But, you know, like any parent, you just want things to go right for your kids. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It's just a natural reaction. It's just that my kids do things in front of millions of people and there's big, big stakes for them, you know, whenever they're playing. So, yeah, I I find it. You know, and, and I can be out there for hours. You know, a best of five set match can last five hours, and you can be out there, you're too nervous to eat or drink anything, and um, yeah, you're just you know, your stomach's in knots. It's it's kind of a mixture of a heart attack and severe nausea, all rolled into one. So, it's no, it isn't any fun. In
2: terms of, in terms of um. His, and his recent injuries and his setback. has that been difficult for you to watch?
1: It's been more difficult for him. Yeah, it's definitely been uh, it's definitely been difficult to watch. He's got incredible resilience um, and patience and determination um, to kind of go through and do everything that he has to do to help him to rehab and get better you know whether that's diet whether that's exercises whether it's operations whether it's needles you know whatever it is he's prepared to do whatever it takes to help him to get back um he's just really quite a remarkably resilient um young man i i I don't know how he 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 does it you know you've got to be incredibly mentally tough to go through an injury that's that's hampered him for as long as that and it happened to him when he was number one in the world he was playing the best tennis of his life um he was on the most incredible winning streak um and and then you know semi-finals of the french it starts you know it's, it, he has a problem with his hip and that was 2017 kind of end of may 2017 beginning of june and it's been a challenge for him ever since but so he's he's still on the mend um and hoping to get going again at the beginning at the beginning of the year.
0: Um, I've just got to come at this point, Judy. Right, and I hope you don't mind, but years ago when Andy was uh, signed with Fred Perry, right? I was, I was a, I was a big Andy Farrell, obviously. And remember, he wore the white top and the blue Fred Perry. Yeah. So, so I was all kitted out as a wee boy, white top, <laughs> white shorts, and I remember ordering it from the website. And not only has you obviously get the normal signature, but he signed it himself, and I've kept that since I was a wee lad.
1: Oh, I love it! Proper <laughs> and
0: say, fan. And I said to my mum, I said to my mum last night, I says I'm going to tell Judy that because she'll love it.
1: That's lovely. Yeah, I remember those cards? That they, they were great, and the Fred Perry kit was cool. Yes. You know, it was quite cool and grungy for you know when he when he was young. It, it kind of fitted for him. Love it. <laughs> Hey, sorry. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, what advice would you give to the youth of today? Um, on on what? Like, just everything, really. Like, in general. Life, yeah, in general. <laughs> I think um, it, it's it's a tough one to answer because there's so many different different. It depends what people what people are doing, but I think that you know if you can if you've worked out what it is that you want to do with your life, you know, what um, occupation or study or sport or whatever it is that you want to pursue is probably to find somebody who is already excellent at what they do and try and find a way to work alongside them or to get them to mentor you in, in some way. Um, there's absolutely no no substitute for being around somebody who knows what they're doing who's got a calm head um a track record and who has your best interests at heart and who want wants to help you as much as you want to be helped by them and you know never to be afraid to ask for help I mean the the worst thing that somebody can say is is no and I've learned how to deal with no for many many years as a woman working in a a male-dominated industry and I always think um you know, you've got to develop a thick skin um, and you've got to not be afraid to go back and, and ask again or to make a nuisance of yourself and, you know, and, and, and keep asking. But I think that's, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do, if you can find somebody to give you some work experience or to be, um, you know, or to be a, a mentor to you that's and and work you know believe in yourself if you don't believe in yourself no, you can't expect somebody else to and be prepared to work as hard as you have to, to because nobody gets to the top in anything if you're trying to get to the top of something nobody gets there without hard work your know, talent will get you so far you need people to open doors for you to create the opportunities and then you need to put the hard work in and it's it's bringing a good attitude every day to what you do that will make you successful
0: That includes higher PE, Katie, so just remember that, all
1: right? (laughs) (laughs) The next couple of
0: questions are about some of the the, the programs that you've got set up at the moment. Um, In 2017, you set up the the Judy Murray Foundation. What was the reason behind that?
1: Um, The reason behind that was that I was just getting increasingly frustrated that Scotland wasn't capitalising on... Jamie and Andy's success or the opportunities that that success presented and I've always been a bit pissed off with tennis having this elitist tag you know that it's only for people for who have money or for the middle class and so I wanted to do I wanted to do something that took tennis into places where it didn't exist because I recognize there's fans all over Scotland that are loving tennis because there are Scots to support in the biggest events and I wanted to take tennis into into places where you wouldn't normally find it. And my common sense was telling me that if I go in and I deliver lots of activities just to children and young people, that will be very short termist. What I need to do is build a workforce. So I need to build a workforce. Can you still hear me? Oh, hear yeah, you, yeah, but not see. All yeah. right. Okay. I think my battery is going a little bit. Um, Yeah, so my common sense was telling me that if I build a workforce and I teach more people how to teach starter tennis in whatever space they have available, so whether that's a school playground or a community hall, um, then if there are more deliverers, that creates more opportunities for for people to play. So that's why I started the foundation, and that's what I do. I I go around the country teaching people how to teach tennis. (coughs) Excellent.
0: Katie,
1: so you're a key promoter
0: for women and girls in sport. Like, how will we really know when we have achieved the quality in sport, and what will that look like? Do you think?
1: I think it will still take a long time to do, to to get there, Katie. I think we were on our way. We were in the best position that we had been in up to the end of 2019 in terms of you know visibility and um momentum i think behind different women's sports and i think you know in some in an olympic year there is always big visibility on female athletes um tennis always has big visibility around wimbledon because it's the biggest prize in tennis and the men and women play at the same venue but there are very few sports that can say that that like athletics and tennis that you have um equality at at the top in terms of visibility prize money um perhaps um but i think that the successes of the the national teams if you look at scotland's women's football team qualifying for the world cup the excitement the visibility around that is massive for encouraging more women and girls not just to watch sport but to actually get involved in in playing it and if you look at england who are always a long way ahead of us because they started taking it seriously before we did and we're we're catching up up here you know if you look at their rugby cricket netball football um, and hockey teams they are world class so people want to watch them and when the performance is world class it becomes more watchable it puts bums on seats it puts eyes on screens and then when more people can see it because it is on TV, or, or in other forms of the media, if you can see it, you might just one day believe that you could be it. But yeah. you certainly might want to have a go at it if you can see it. But if you can't see it, you're unlikely to be it. So I think we were as close, we, we, we were in the best position that, that we could have that we've ever been in towards the end of 2019. And COVID has really sent us a, a giant leap backwards. So but I think we, again, we have to try and see the opportunity here because as a result of COVID, there will be a lot of challenges for everybody with their physical and mental health. And I think that's where sport and physical activity for women and men, it's going to play a huge role going forward. So I think that if we really get behind equality of opportunity <clears throat> at grassroots, then um, we can start to pick, pick up that momentum again. But it is about it is about visibility it is about brands and companies and sponsors getting behind women's sport in the same way as they get behind men's sport. And market forces are such that the men are miles ahead of us just now in terms of all of that. But we have to keep our foot on the gas and, and keep uh, heading forward.
0: Superb. Judy, I'm cautious of your your time, and we've got our Christmas jumpers on, so we'll move on to the last couple of questions in relation to Christmas. Um, And I've got the first one. We've named it Christmas at the Murrays, so we'd like to know what your best and your worst Christmas present is that you've received.
1: (laughs) I think um, somebody asked me that the other day, and, you know, when I think of best Christmas presents, I can't get past Spirograph, and I don't know if you guys will remember that. It was a a drawing game with lots of little discs and it made just great kind of shapes and things. And I remember getting that. I really wanted it, you know, in the days when you had your list made for months and you had to wait to get a special present. I mean, nowadays it feels like kids get special presents all the time but I remember waiting for Spirograph and that I just played with that and played with that and played with that. So I think that stands out as a, as a best present from many, many years ago. And the worst presents for me are oh, just anything that is socks. I mean, who gives people socks <laughs> for Christmas? But somebody always does. So yeah, socks, I mean, I, I remember always as a, you know, you'd open up something from a granny or an auntie and you'd think, <laughs> Socks, what are you doing? It's Christmas, you know? Anyway, <laughs> socks, yeah. yeah. You'll get the next question, pal. Um, What's your
0: favourite
1: Christmas movie or song? Christmas movie is definitely um, Miracle on 34th Street, although I'm a big fan of Home Alone as well, but I can't watch Home Alone every year, but I can watch Miracle on 34th Street with um, Richard Attenborough. It's just a lovely, nice, quite romantic and a little bit sad in some bits, but he's just the most amazing father Christmas. <clears throat> and I think um, song is probably I wish it could be Christmas every day by Wizard yeah, yeah. because it reminds me of my student days and dancing around the kitchen uh, in my student flat with all my flatmates and just going a bit nuts. I don't do things like that anymore because I'm far too old but <laughs> I, 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 that's always what that song makes me think of you know a time and a place when uh, when that was just great fun.
2: Judy, my next question is a bit of a strange one but this, we've got Mr. McCute to thank for this one but have you got a that's this cracker joke?
1: Yeah, actually I have. Um, okay. What do you call a donkey with three legs? I don't know. Wonky. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It's dreadful, isn't it? But it's, it's about the one joke that I always remember and it came out of a cracker. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. Um, do you have any family traditions that you that take place at Christmas?
1: Uh, well, I would have to say that certainly with with Andy and Jamie because they are professional tennis players, they are rarely at home over Christmas um, because the tournaments at the start of the year are always in australia or on the other side of the world so for them to get ready for that they are often spending christmas in warmer climates and outdoors so they can prepare for that so um but i would if i was picking a family tradition there are two games that we would always play and one was dominoes and the other one was carpet bowls and scattergrays that was if you're looking at a board game so yeah i think those would be our definite go-to after you've After you've been fed and everybody's had a little bit of a tidy up and a little bit of a sleep, it would be something competitive. um, And those would be the three things, the main three things that would be out every year.
0: I can imagine that's a very intense game of dominoes, Judy. Would I be correct in saying that?
1: Yeah, it is. There's one member of my family who is ultra competitive and no prizes for guessing who that is. And who also... um, Takes a long time deciding which domino he's going to play because he's working everything out in his head. He's like some kind of chess computer as to you know what's going on. Um, and also is a very bad loser.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is Christmas now extra special when you've got grandkids on the scene?
1: Yeah, um Andy and Kim and the kids were up for Christmas last year. Won't see them this year because of all the travel bans and everything. But that was very that was very special. I mean, Christmas is always it's it's just that bit extra special, isn't it? When there's when there's children around, so um, it's it's far more chaotic. But um, yeah, great fun. Absolutely.
2: And then the last one is what will your, your plans be for Christmas this year?
1: Um, I'm going to stay up here um, in Scotland. I think the boys will both be in London. Um, I think it's just we've we've all kind of been waiting to see what, what all the restrictions are. Yeah. You know, there's different restrictions down there for them, where they are, and obviously different up here. But I actually think that with everything that we've gone through this year, I think it just makes more sense to kind of stay close to home, don't take any unnecessary risks anywhere Um and um, let's hope for a healthier, happier safer, sportier 2021 and uh, looking forward to seeing this vaccine sometime in the not too distant future.
0: Absolutely I'll second that um, the, the final question, we'll just have a wee finish up uh, we've named it dinner guests but we'd like to know your three Christmas party <coughs> guests, it could be anybody but why?
1: My name I would um, I would have Prince Philip. I always say Prince Philip, because I think that if you get a few red wines down Prince Philip, I think you're going to get an awful lot of great royal secret stories. Um, George Clooney, for obvious reasons, he doesn't actually need to speak at all. I just sit and look at him and I think. Um, I think probably somebody like uh, Joanna Lumley. I'm a big fan of Joanna Lumley. Really fun, fun person to be around. I've met her a couple of times. I've done a couple of charity things with her, and she's riotous. So I think those would be my those would be my my three.
0: Love it, absolutely love it, um, Julie. That is all our questions for you. Um, I, I honestly can't thank you enough. We've um, been able to spend the last kind of half an hour, forty minutes with you. Um, we really, really do appreciate it. So thank you so much, so so much.
1: That is uh, okay. You're very, very welcome. I'm always up for supporting uh, sporty people and, uh, and 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 young people. And, and I think that the more that we can share we can share experiences um, the better. I, I, so uh, yeah, you you did a good job with um, finding a way to be through the foundation and you, your email probably came in at a time where I thought, yeah, I could do that. So there you go Yeah, very happy to be with you Um, Nice to meet you everybody Katie, well done with the questions and the smile And um, have a great 2021 Well, let's just hope it's better than 2020
0: Absolutely Marcel Johnson, (laughs) thank you for your time Katie, thank you for your time I wish you all a merry and safe And holy Christmas Take care, goodbye Bye